religions course. In your opinion, is there any difference between Christianity and the world's other great religions? Now, I will tell you, I began my response by acknowledging that I'm not an expert on comparative religions. But then I added that as a person of, Christian, of the Christian faith, that she should know that for me, the best way that I have come to experience God is through Jesus. But that the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus teaches us to respect those who call God by another name. In fact, we should respect, have respect for people of other faith traditions, and we should have that respect, I wrote, not in spite of our faith in Jesus, but because of it. Now, I know you asked about the differences, but let me start with at least what seems to be a commonality that unites many of the world's great religions. And one is a belief that the testimony of your faith is how you live your life. Put more particularly, if a person of another religion wishes to know what Christianity is like, they're not likely to read the Bible to find out. But instead, they will look at how Christians treat the world and how they treat one another and then discern what our faith is like. It's even said that the best evidence of Christ's resurrection is how each of us lives our lives in love. So what is common to the world religions is that our actions speak louder than our words. But you asked if there's any difference. Is there anything that separates our Christian faith from the other great religions? And I think there is. One writer tells the story of a conference on comparative religions that took place in Britain years ago. The topic turned to your very question. Is there anything unique about Christianity? And the speakers began to toss out some possible responses and then they would eliminate them. What about the incarnation, one asked, when God was made flesh? No, someone responded, other religions have God taking a human form as well. Well, then the resurrection, said another. Well, not really unique to Christianity, as there are other faith traditions that have accounts of someone returning from death. The debate continued until C.S. Lewis came into the room, and when told of the topic, what is unique to the Christian faith, Lewis apparently didn't hesitate, and he said, I think that's easy. The difference is grace. Grace. And after some back and forth, the participants, and some reluctantly, agreed. They agreed that the idea, maybe even the dangerous notion, that God's love comes to us free of charge, no strings attached. The idea that Jesus' teachings, that God's love and forgiveness cannot be earned, but that that love is offered freely by God, that seems to be unique to the Christian faith. I mean, consider the Greek and Roman religions that you have probably studied in your religions class. Basically, the best you could expect, the Greeks and Romans could expect, was this. If you offered up your sacrifices, if you did your best to treat the gods well, then, at best, 
those gods would leave you alone. At worst, they would punish you for some known or perhaps unknown infraction. But they would never love you. The concept of grace, or even the concept of being loved by God, would have been laughable to the Greeks or Romans. And what about other of the great modern religions today? Well, almost all of them, from the Buddhist Eightfold Path to the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant of, with God, the Muslim code of law, each of those offers a path, a direction to earn God's approval. But the wisdom of our faith, and sometimes the challenge, is that even when you cannot love God, God loves you, free of charge. I mean, it's on the house. However, that isn't cheap grace. Acknowledging that you are loved by God, even when you don't feel like you love God, if you acknowledge that and come to embrace that, that is supposed to transform us for the better. And most of Jesus' parables hammer away at this remarkable and perhaps unique truth of our faith. And maybe that's why Jesus spoke of it so frequently. Perhaps to help us overcome our resistance to the belief that we deserve to be loved and forgiven by God. I hope you remember from confirmation the story of the prodigal son, the wayward young person who wastes his father's money while living abroad. I also hope you remember what happens when that son decides to return home. When he returns home, is there a lecture from the loving parent? I hope you've learned your lesson. Now you'll pay me back. No, of course not. We are left with the image of an embrace. An embrace of the lost child by the loving parent. There was only jubilation, not a word of condemnation. And why? Why? Because the loving parent says, my child was lost, but now is found. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus describes a world steeped in God's unconditional love. And here's my hunch. That promise, it sounds lovely, but sometimes it's a real challenge for us. And it's a challenge to us, I think, because we're accustomed to finding a, a catch in every promise. I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Or as your parents always taught you, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. I mean, those are our suspicions, right? But because of Jesus, we understand that with God's love, there's no catch, no loophole. There's no lecture. There is only the embrace. An embrace which turns us back to God. I know, you're right. These parables of grace have endings that seem, well, they seem too good to be true. But maybe the endings are so good, they must be true. And I do believe 
that God does rejoice when any one of God's children who was lost is found. And each time we return, and I have to tell you that over a lifetime, I think we drift away and return more times than we can ever count. But each time we return, there's no lecture, but instead an embrace. And the embrace of God is free of charge. It's on the house. The embrace is the heart of our faith, and we call it grace. Amen. This is the joyous feast of the people 